Hubhopper Originals. To start your podcast for free, log on to studio.hubhopper.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to Indian Genes. This is going to be our last conversation for the year 2021 and we've had some amazing guests and spoken to some absolutely brilliant minds. The response to our part 1 episode with Dr. Anup Kumar was amazing and we thank each and every one of you for sending in those comments from the comments that we've been getting the following that we have we are now heard in over 85 countries we have been regularly topping the apple podcast charts and all other charts related to science and physics so thank you for all your support and we do assure you that we've got an amazing new setup that's going to be coming up in 2022 we will be speaking to a lot of more interesting people we are also looking at launching these episodes on youtube so keep an eye on that we will be posting all these updates on our instagram we continue this with our part 2 episode here with dr anup kumar who is both certified in emergency medicine he is the author of michelangelo's medicine and is this a dream in our first part of this episode we spoke to him about his three minds framework We continue down that line and we have a lot more to speak about and I'm sure you're going to enjoy this conversation. So without taking too much more time, I now present to you part 2 of this amazing conversation with Dr. Anup Kumar. Right, and I think this also came up with uh, Descartes, right? He started this when he spoke about the mind and the body as two two different entities. Yes, I I, I think that's popularly talked about and i think you know he was he's often quoted as saying i think therefore i am mm. um, you know and i think these kinds of ideas i don't know much about descartes but i would doubt that he was a superficial guy you know i would mm. i would doubt that his interpretation of dualism was that there is mind and there is body and they are two different things and have nothing to do with that, with each other period i do know i read one of his quotes i think it's from his sixth meditation um in which the way he's talking about it to me seems like he's saying this is almost a strategy so a strategy of approaching this is to say that there is something called mind and there is something called body and if we removed the mind from the body the the body would still function as it does right and this is not this is not my in-depth reading of it this is just my impression from reading mm. that is that he is saying that this is a way to approach understanding the body or a way to approach understanding human is to say that okay let's leave out the mind and approach the body and then we we can think that the body would still function as it does i don't know that that means that he thinks they are essentially different or they have to be different so i'm i am i don't have an opinion on what his true understanding was right and that definitely when you talk about consciousness or you talk about the hard hard problem of consciousness that seems to be one of the i find that one of the most interesting topics right now because it seems to be at the edge of what we know and i get a feeling that in some time we will know and i just want to ask you looking at it from the other side now if i was for example somebody who believed that uh, as a neurobiologist that a consciousness was does come out of the mind it's uh-huh. generated because of chemical reactions and it's just that we haven't had the time in science to get there but given enough of time 
we will find the seat of consciousness or a chemical reaction. How, how do you tackle that? I say go for it. I don't think there's anything to tackle. If somebody uh, sees the brain as fundamental and sees consciousness as arising from the brain, I would say go for it and, and see where it gets you. It certainly will give us more data to work with. Um, mm. And at some point, this person that is pursuing this path will have to ask, what is the nature of consciousness? And what is this brain that we're talking about? Is the brain collection of neurons? Is it a collection of atoms? Is it a collection of elementary particles? Is it interfacing fields? If so, what is the relationship between interfacing fields and your definition of consciousness and of a non-local kind of consciousness? Is there any relationship between the non-locality of fields and a non-local consciousness? Is there any relationship? Is there any representational correlation between them? If so, what is that correlation? So if you can answer all of these questions, it doesn't matter where you start or what your belief is, as long as you're honest about your terms, defining your terms and asking the questions all the way to the core. Even down to the basic building blocks or the basic atoms, and you break it down further and you get into the atom and the quarks and yeah. it's vibrating strings. That was a part of the string theory, but basically it's a wave and not a particle anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so my view is that whether we interpret as wave or we view as particle depends on the nature of the identity that is observing this, right? I'm not saying it changes out there. I'm saying the very view that we take and interpret changes depending on the nature of our own identity. Let me say something else here about quantum physics. You know, there's this view in, because it's, it's so popular, right? It, so many people in spirituality, in science, and in just general public are so interested in this. Why are they so interested in this? Because this quantum is straddling these worlds of the local and the non-local, of the particulate and of the non-bounded or of the unbounded, of the finite and the not finite, or at least less finite, right? Yeah. And often what I've seen is I've seen people complaining that, you know, there's there's so much non-expert talk about quantum physics, right? Only experts should be talking about quantum physics or quantum physicists should be talking about quantum physics. And I think this is a ridiculous notion for the following reason. Number one, the word quantum itself was in existence for centuries before physics adopted it, right? The word quantum was adopted by Max Planck to describe energy occurring in discrete packets, right? Or what are called quanta. He found the concept of the quantum important to describe how energy might behave or how energy might be packaged. And doing that allowed his experiment to work, allowed his understanding to grow in leaps and bounds, thereby causing the birth of quantum physics, right? So this concept, which was in existence in the human mind, was applied to physics, thereby yielding quantum physics, right? So now to say that we need specialization in physics, for example, to understand the quantum, it's, it's ridiculous. It would be something like me saying, I'm an emergency physician, right? So nobody mm -hmm. can comment on emergencies because I'm an emergency physician, right? So unless you've done medical school and unless you've done training in emergency medicine and, and worked and seen all the emergencies, then, then you can't really interpret um, emergency medicine and specifically emergencies. It would be bogus, right? Because 
emergencies are experiences that we've all had, that we all, that the human society has coined the term emergency, something that emerges, something that comes out of the state of emergence, right? Rather radically is what we call emergency. And so everybody has, in a sense, expertise on what an emergency might be. Now, of course, to treat a particular patient in a particular situation, the medical knowledge has to be there. Yes, there a person has to go to medical school and emergency medicine training, but not to comment on the interpretation of this, which is exactly the analogy with quantum physics, right? So the quantum to begin with, the quantum is this experience of boundedness. What is a quantum? It is a unit. How do you define a unit? By a boundary. What is this boundary that we're talking about? It is this first mind identity. When a human being experiences themselves as a localized and finite entity, there the concept of the quantum is born. And when this human being then accordingly interprets, physicalizes, and perceives a world of bounded things, thereby we see a quantized world. So it is not that my consciousness as an individual is changing the world, but it is that this infinite non-local consciousness itself, quantizing itself as the observer and the observed, yields the world of quanta. I'm using quanta in a loose term now, just as a unit of anything, a boundary of anything. Mm -hmm. So what quantum physics is doing is it is applying this very human experience and it has refined it in a very excellent and useful way to be mathematically precise. And because we are first-minded people as a civilization, because we are generally in the first mind range, we appreciate the preciseness of quantum physics because it represents something so fundamental in our nature. Mm, brilliant. This conversation has to be opened up a bit to non-experts as well, because that's exactly uh, what we're doing here and what we're trying to do, because a lot of people listening to us or me myself, I'm I'm definitely not an expert. I'm, I'm not even close to claiming to be one. And the second part that you spoke about when you spoke about uh, the observer or the collective observer. So what you are saying or what I thought you were saying is that there doesn't necessarily have to be somebody who's looking at the moon for the moon to then materialize. Because if no one is looking at the moon, the moon is still there. Well, the question is, what is this moon that we're referring to, right? Are we talking about moon as this bounded object? Are we talking about moon is it in its second mind nature? Are we talking about something in between, right? So again, the experience of particularity. So when we say moon, generally when we say moon in our society, it means that, that thing up there in space with this particular dimension looks a particular way, particular color, right? It's a very distinct understanding of moon, not just moon, anything, pillow, mm. car, phone, right? Even conversation. Conversation is a little bit more nebulous, but we still have some boundary around what defines a conversation, right? If it's only one person talking and there are no responses, I would say, eh, maybe it wasn't really a conversation. That doesn't fit our boundary of what a conversation is. So mm. when we say moon, we're usually talking about the first mind moon, right? There is also a second mind moon, which is that deeper that is not different from the second mind you or the second mind me. So for, for there to be particularity, there has to be a particular consciousness as well. 
And mm. these two occur in association with each other. So I would not say, given, given where the society is in terms of how we talk about things and understandings and to prevent misunderstanding as much as possible, I, I wouldn't say that the, my, the moon disappears when we don't look at it. I think, and not that it's right or wrong, but I think it may be more confusing. I think it's better to say that the moon as it is, is not experienced when we're not looking at it. The moon as we think of it rather, is not there when we're not looking at it. But is there some version of this moon? Is there some nature that we call moon that is still present? Yes, there is still something present. But how it differentiates in the grid of time, space, and identity depends on the nature of consciousness itself and how it localizes. So would you say that there is the potential to be a moon if you use the term the logos? So there is a potential and there could be a potential could be the potential to manifest into anything and then a potential to manifest into the moon. Yes, absolutely. The, the first mind moon, the discrete moon. Yes, that potential is always there. It's always here. It's always present because that that's and here this potential I'm talking about the second mind, not the third mind. But this, mm. this second mind nature, the undifferentiated nature of consciousness is always present. And in that sense, that is the moon. And in that sense, yes, the moon is present even when we're not looking at it. It is just not present in the way that we might imagine that it is. Now, we have a lot of people who speak to us about precognitions. So if I was, if I was to tell somebody that in 10 years from now, Mm -hmm. uh, this is what would happen to you, for example. You'd have mm -hmm. a, a minor accident. Mm -hmm. So for the next 10 years, that person holds that thought in their mind. Yeah. And 10 years later, something does happen. That doesn't necessarily mean that I had predicted. It's just that because this person kept moving in that direction with this thought in mind, that is what actually happened. Yeah, I think, I think it, that depends on the interpretation, but certainly both are possible, right? So because it's almost like a meditation, I keep mm. something in my mind long enough and all my attention is kind of um, collecting around that. And therefore that I'm more likely to notice and also put attention and behavior towards those kinds of actions happening. Yes. Mm. And you were speaking about the second mind. I just want to check with you. I'm definitely a first mind. And uh, now, do you know of, or could you, could you let us know about any second mind people that you think are currently around? Well, I like to think of one of the reasons I came up with this framework is because I wouldn't say you are the first mind. You know, I would say that we are all the third, first, third, second, and first minds. And it's, it's kind of like moving beyond this idea of this first mind, me as an individual, going to reach somewhere over there called the second mind. No, mm -hmm. it's, I think it's a lot, of, lot less pressure than that, actually. I think, you know, what we are is already of this nature. I mean, it's, in a sense, it's the most obvious thing in the world, right? How could we, how could we not be of the nature of the universe, right? Wouldn't that be impossible, given that we are an aspect of the universe? How could we not be of the nature of the universe. How could, whether we call it consciousness or whether we call it a kind of intelligence, how could that not be at least an aspect of what we are? It would be impossible. 
Like, mm. we, because we are emerging from this, we are a part of this, we are this in a sense. So what this is doing, the Three Minds Framework, is simply putting that down on paper and saying, hey, let's just remind ourselves that we have nowhere to go, we have nobody else to become, in a sense. It's simply what we all are, and it's simply getting the, the better stories, more complete stories, stories that make more sense with less artifact, right? And I think when we do that, the mind will naturally start to relax and fall into the other ranges of its nature. So it's not that some people are special and they have a second mind. No, there is only one second mind. And it is, it is all of our, there are many first minds, but there's only one second mind. And it is all of our nature. But would you say that there are certain individuals that tune in better? Yeah, there, there are extents to which like that first mind boundary changes for different people. Yes, that of course happens. And that's the whole idea behind the three minds framework is that each of us can recognize that whenever you see me, I see you, he, she, he sees them, they see her. When we talk about this, we're talking about this as one individual seeing another. These are encapsulations or boundaries or superimpositions within this broader field of consciousness. And when we recognize it as such, then that recognition itself is moving into the second mind frame. Does meditation uh, help? Is that what meditation is doing? Is kind of uh, giving us a little bit more insight into or trying to break that boundary down? Yes, of course, there are many kinds of meditation. And what we mean by meditation, what different people mean or do may be different. But certainly in, in, in a, let's say, in a gross sense, the act of meditating, the act of, of keeping the body somewhere and the kind of classical notion of then allowing the mind to relax, um, or some people might try concentration techniques or different kinds of techniques. But all of this, the idea is that eventually, at some point, we become aware of the boundary of identity right? Now, in most cases, before that happens, there are many other things that have to happen first. Because, again, because of all the very narrow stories that are told in the educational systems around the world and the marketing systems around the world, because of this, there's so, there's so many thoughts in the minds of individuals, so many questions. Why is it this way? How is it this way? Why is it this? Then what about this? And then what about space? And then what about time? And then how is this? How, you know, it's, it's natural that when you're given bad stories, you're going to get more questions, right? If you get a great story, that mind eventually will actually settle and it'll have fewer and fewer questions. That's how you know the story is, you know, not because somebody's forcing you not to ask, but because it just settles into itself and it just knows the answers because it's already its own nature. So when you're getting all of these stories that are incomplete, radically incomplete, the mind's going to be turbulent because it's naturally resisting. Oh, yeah, but then what about this? Oh, yeah, but then what about this? Then how do I do this? And how does the next thing happen? So that's the first stage of meditation. And that's why a lot of people don't like meditation. That's why meditation is considered very difficult because the first stage is the reaction to the terrible stories we're given. And at, we have to come face to face with this irritation, 
incompletion that is the nature of our society. Unless we're willing to face that, we can't go to the deeper levels, right? Mm -hmm. So that's often the first stage. That's when it's hard to meditate. That's when people don't want to meditate. That's when they try it and then they quit. Offer good reasons. But I think we have, if you understand the long view and the overall picture of what's happening, and if you can sit it out and, and just be with that agitation, right? And again, it doesn't have to be alone because a lot of this can be very difficult. You know, there's all kinds of things that happen in our society. There are traumatic things that happen. There's so much that happens. And we need the help of friends. We need the help of being in nature. We need the help of good storytellers. We need, you know, everything. Use all the things that are disposable. But ultimately, being able to face that agitation, that uncertainty, those questions. And at some point, when those start to diminish, those start to evaporate, then, you know, everything else will start to come out too. Like other things that have happened in our lives, other things from other lifetimes that are still part of this first mind boundary, because after all, we're here as individuals. Therefore, there, there is going to be something within that boundary from other lifetimes as well. So all of this will start to come up. And slowly, as these things are processed within this broader mind, then the the shell of identity starts to crack. Because in fact, what keeps the first mind identity intact are kind of bad stories, the emotions that we have suppressed that we haven't been allowed to release or we told we should not release, right? The creative ideas that we haven't been able to express to others, the injuries that we have sustained that we have not resolved uh, emotionally, so they're part of that boundary. All of this is what constitutes the boundary, just like we might create a concrete ring around some water to create a pool. And that water can only be contained so long as the concrete is intact. And that concrete is made up of all the things that we have mixed together, yeah. mixing together that concrete, all the ingredients of past experiences. You mix them all together, you make this concrete wall, and this seems to define us. But over time, as it gets weather beaten through rain, through the the emotions of the rainy season, the emotions of the summer, the emotions of winter, the emotions of the spring and the autumn, all the experiences, people coming by, sitting on it, playing, playing football against it, doing all kinds of stuff, sleeping on it. Eventually, when all of these experiences are fully processed, that concrete wears down over time and that water then escapes its boundary, so to speak, or naturally just flows, overflows into the larger well that it was a part of. So similarly, this process of meditation, as the initial thoughts, experiences start to go, the deeper ones, the ones that happen across lifetimes will show up. And then this boundary, some of the most core aspects of our identity, our core beliefs that have really concretized will, be, will become apparent. And it is as this cracks, uh, that, so to speak, the, the light shines, so to speak, right? That deeper nature starts to come through. So in this sense, if we understand what meditation is, this is how it works. And where does the deeper nature come from? The deeper nature is what is here. It is the deeper nature only from the first mind perspective. It's right. not, it is the nature of the universe, right? right? Like so if, if, if I had to bring water here to my room, I would have to bring it somewhere. But if I were in the ocean, 
I, I wouldn't ask where the water is from, right? It's just mm. water is the nature of this place. What about a species that is really close to us? For example, a chimpanzee. Mm-hmm. And uh, they are conscious as well. Uh, but uh, do, they, do they have minds? Well, in the way I define it, they certainly do. I'm not an expert on chimpanzee, but the very fact that we are experiencing this as a distinct identity, that mm. what we call chimpanzees seem to be identities experiencing themselves as something distinct and also in relationship, then surely they have minds, but even beyond that, they are minds. Right. right. right, right. Plant is mind. What, what we call the rock outside that we we believe is inanimate because we have not, we don't conceive of it in a fine way. So mm. we believe the rock is inanimate. So even this is of the nature of mind. There is nothing, in my view, outside of the nature of mind until we go to that non-distinct experience, which is what I refer to as consciousness itself. Correct. And and the reason I said chimpanzee, because I want to take it to the other extreme, but we talk about AI now and yeah. creating robots or creating artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is also going to be created within uh, consciousness. So a robot is going to be created within consciousness. So it may not happen naturally. So why would we not be able to generate that consciousness if it is prevalent everywhere or trigger it within a robot? Yeah, this is probably somewhere where I disagree with a lot of people who see the nature of consciousness as fundamental. Um, I don't think that that robots that cannot have consciousness. I don't think that. I don't think that's that's going to be impossible because my view of consciousness is probably different from them. I think a lot of people are probably talking about consciousness as a personal distinct kind of phenomenon or a human kind of phenomenon, right? First thing is when, when we're talking about AI, we're kind of contrasting that with natural intelligence, artificial intelligence and natural intelligence but we don't know what natural intelligence is. So mm. I submit that we actually don't know what artificial intelligence is. We think we know. It's a little bit like talking about mental health. We think we know, but we don't know what the mind is. So you know what we refer to as AI is, is a certain kind of processing. I understand that. But is that different from intelligence? Is that different from natural intelligence? No, I think it's a, it's a kind of it. It's a kind of in our human view, it's a kind of proto-intelligence, right? So, or it's a very primitive kind of intelligence. But mm. this goes to what I call the recognition problem. And that is that I can only recognize intelligence and consciousness to the extent that I see myself as intelligent and consciousness, right? So if we take a, a human perspective, the human species, the human species can only recognize consciousness and, and intelligence in a way that it itself believes it is conscious and intelligent. And so mm. when a human being might look at a brick outside, then this person might say, oh, that's not intelligent. Of course it can't be intelligent. Look at me, I can do addition. That's intelligence. Or that's not conscious, it can't be conscious because conscious is speaking English, right? Of course I'm exaggerating. Or it's speaking mm. this language or it's being able to add constructs, multiple constructs to each other. Well, maybe that's not consciousness. Maybe those are functions of consciousness, right? Maybe those are expressions of consciousness. And if this person is speaking from the first mind perspective and is superimposing that, this person is going to see a world of duality, is going to see a world of matter and mind, and therefore will create something 
called artificial intelligence and natural intelligence. I think simply intelligence is a way that consciousness expresses order as seen from the first mind level, because we're all, everything, all the conversations we're talking about are assuming particularity. Mm. But as this builds or arranges in particular ways, I don't see any reason why robots can't quote unquote be conscious, given that not only robots, but everything in this three minds framework is of the nature of consciousness itself. Mm. Now, that was not going to necessarily correlate with human consciousness, it's not going to think in the same way, yeah. it's not going to act yeah. in the same way. I think, I frankly think it could create a lot of problems because without understanding intelligence itself, without understanding ourselves and how intelligence is building, believing in the world of duality, believing that it is because we're arranging these things in particular ways that we are creating consciousness through all of these misunderstandings, we will inevitably still be able to create something like this because not because we are intelligent in this way, but because it is the nature of the universe to do that. And there is a big gap in understanding between consciousness as a nature of the universe and how it might express and me or you as individuals creating something we call consciousness. Mm. Also, what we were speaking about earlier with uh, the possibility of life on so many other planets and evolution or biological evolution could have taken so many different turns and, and still uh, materialized it to some form of consciousness, but we're talking about human consciousness here. And AI doesn't necessarily have to go in that direction. It could go in some other direction as well. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I think because of this huge gap between consciousness as fundamental and the kind of consciousness we are talking about when we talk about AI, for example, because of the huge amounts of misunderstanding that can happen between these two, certainly that's the case. Mm. And what are your thoughts on, for example, the, the brain-computer integration system and if we are ever able to enhance the capability of a brain through computers or we're talking about, Elon Musk is talking about microchips at the moment, that would definitely have an impact on empirical intelligence, let's say, or it would have an impact on memory. It will definitely have an impact on productivity. But is that going to have any impact or do you see any impact on emotion? Would that would you would we ever in the future be able to put in a chip to say, okay, this is the happy chip? Well, I think again, going back to before, I think the big gap in understanding between the nature of consciousness is fundamental, whether or not, by the way, whether or not we think it's true, because I know there are many people that will listen and say, well, you know, okay, but I, I don't buy that. I don't think there is a non-local consciousness fundamental. I think that's okay. That's, that's, that's a reasonable view. Mm. But considering that perspective and saying, okay, if that's the case, and then there's this tremendous gap in understanding between the kind of consciousness, between the way we think of consciousness as being created by AI and this, this kind of original nature of consciousness, that is a tremendous possibility for misunderstanding. And I think at least we should consider that seriously, even if this is not our, our particular take. So if that is the case, I certainly think there can be many kinds of other effects that are going to affect us. Even now, before we get to you know, brain interfaces, we're already in a place where when somebody's not feeling good or having certain difficulties or suffering, we our first option many times is taking a pill, right? Mm. We don't look at the simple fact that the food that we eat, for example, can affect how we feel. 
the physical environment, whether we're in nature or not, can affect how we feel. So even now with, with such, we can say, obvious things, such low-hanging fruit that are powerful in terms of their ability to influence our experience, if we're not doing that even now and seeing that influence, how do we expect to see the kind of influence that might happen from one of these chips, right? So say you put a chip and you can feel better because you're stimulating a certain area of the brain. Okay, mm. but what are the other effects? Are we going to, number one, have the subtlety to notice those effects? That's one question. I think we're less likely to do that. Number two, will we care? And probably not because people just want to feel better often. That's just the story and the direction of society so often. Right. But that's going to naturally come at other costs. So I think if we're talking about, first of all, this interface, it's coming, it's probably already here. And in some sense, it's inevitable. So I think the key, as always, is educating ourselves and becoming more aware of ourselves and the things that influence us and what works for us and what doesn't work for us and developing those before we go to adding these things on. Now, in some cases, certainly I can see, you know, somebody who cannot walk or somebody cannot at all have certain experiences or cannot see through the eyes, right? Then are there cases to be made for using these things? I certainly think so. And I certainly think in the beginning, it is going to be in that way. But, you know, pretty soon, if that keeps going, it's going to create uh, a society of one side or the other, right? People that can do certain things because of this neural enhancement versus people who can't. Well, who are you going to hire for the next job, right? The guy that can, mm-hmm. that can carry more memory units simultaneously or not. And so it comes down to this fundamental question of what it means to be human, what it means to live a good life. And if we are measuring productivity, going back to something you said earlier, if we're measuring productivity in terms of units of material object produced per unit time, Mm. um, as opposed to what are we producing? Asking the question, what are we producing? Are we producing clarity, right? Why can't we ask, why can't we redefine productivity? Are we producing clarity for the majority of people? Are we producing um, independent thinking for the majority of people? Are we producing not easiness, but at least a sense of ease, a sense of meaning, right? Are we, are we productive in that sense? I think that's the shift we're going to have to make because the technology is inevitable, but the insight, the sensitivity, and the direction, that is where the work is to be done because the technology progress itself is not going to stop. Mm, but yes, and that is assuming that uh, we have violations that explicitly cause actions and we can lead to certain outcomes and I, I would like to know which end are you at when it comes to free will or do we live in a deterministic universe because if we do live in a deterministic universe then part of all this is predefined or mm-hmm. do you do you think of some kind of uh, a combination of the two well free will is always relative to the identity as everything is relative to the identity So if we're talking about free will, the question is free will for whom by whom, right? Free will, the way we talk about in our society, it's free will for the individual, right? Mm -hmm. I have have the will now that I can raise my right arm 
or I can start eating food, or I can keep talking or not talking. Who is this I? It is the individual identity, right? So that's free will. We're talking about the individual identity. Now, what is, so where there is the experience of individual identity and to the extent that identity is experienced as discrete and individual, there, there will be the experience of free will. Free will is simply the experience of experiencing, sorry, of expressing intention as an individual. Mm. So if you look at the reason that we are individuals to begin with is because there is some tendency, there is some intention to express. And that intention to express is what is experienced as free will. That is the first mind experience of expressing. Now, where does that come from in the three minds framework? It comes from this broader mind. It is the, the fluctuations and the, the intimations of the second mind that ripple out and condense as the first mind boundary, the experience of which is free will, as we call it. So when you ask, is there free will? For the individual, to the extent that that experience of individuality is there, there is free will. Okay, how about beyond the first mind? Is there free will? There's still free will, but here the will is not of the individual. It is a subtler, non-local will. And that is what we are seeing as, experiencing as the discrete world as, as individuals. So there is always free will. Free will is inescapable so long as the experience of individuality is there. I know there are some people who say, I don't believe in free will, there is no free will. This is in some cases an intellectual concept where they're trying to, they're trying to describe the second mind experience through the first mind experience. And so there's, there's an internal contradiction or they're describing a combination of some experience of individuality and some experience not of individuality. And the way they're condensing it is as the statement, quote unquote, there is no free will. But a more, a more, I think, precise and complete and comprehensive way is to see that free will is present as we talk about it in society to the extent that the first mind identity is concretized and to the extent that this identity becomes subtler and translucent and porous and cracks, to that extent, the nature of free will is experienced differently and non-locally. Mm. And you would say that it moves progressively from obviously the second mind to the first mind, because the first mind would be more of a, a doer or somebody who, who does stuff, right? That's if you're trying to, if I'm trying to visualize the first mind and, and give it some form of uh, characteristic, then the first mind is something that produces action. Yes, we can say that. I was very interested in the third mind that we didn't touch on so far as well. Yeah. Uh, if we could spend a little bit of time there, because when we talk about potential and we talk about the third mind, that seems to be very intriguing because to some extent, I think most of us listening to this conversation can identify with our own experiences and I can say, yes, I have kind of, I, I know what you're talking about when you say first and second mind, because we've been in that moment sometime or the other, either a flow state or enjoyed a film or a movie or a song and, and, and felt euphoria, you know? So we, we, we have bounced between those two. 
but it's the third mind that's very intriguing and would be a little bit more difficult to get a hold of. So let me just say that for the second mind, it's, you know, the, the experience initially can be, of course, of euphoria, of ecstasy, of bliss, and many of these things that are described in many traditions. Um, as that experience settles over time, it's not what we're talking about is not necessarily a kind of euphoria or bliss or ecstasy. So I just want to be clear about that. Then when we're talking about second mind, it is, there's an entire range of experience. And if we're, if we want to talk about the second mind proper in a sense, it is simply this identity as consciousness, as non-local consciousness, but still with the tendency to localize, right? That is, that is like at one end of the range, we can say, of the mm. second mind. So again, when we get to the third mind, if your language is the language of the lo local and the non-local, if our language is the language of the finite and then the infinite, right? If our language is that of that which is dependent and that which is independent, then what is the language that we would use to describe something that is neither of those. Mm. I don't have a word for it. I call it potential, but that fails because the second mind is potential. Actually, mm. we compare it to the first mind world. It is the second mind that is of the nature of potential, mm. you know, and it is, it is in most spiritual traditions, it will be the second mind, which is extolled because the, the second mind is, is still in a sense practical because it does confer certain experiences that are wonderful and essential to be human. Mm. But the third mind itself, that's why I say, I call it second mind medicine, right? That's where we want to go. I talk about the second mind all the time. I don't think as far as I know, and I am capable talking about the third mind is generally not possible because it is not a, linguistic it can't be contorted the second mind can still be i guess somewhat contorted into language mm -hmm. but the third mind i don't feel like it can be you know one way to say it is that the second mind many would say is of the nature of illumination right it's of the nature of identity beyond particularity it's of the nature of illumination it's of the nature of simply being but all of these we understand in contrast to something like non-illumination or, or doing or particularity. Um, but if there were a place in which this kind of dance itself or this kind of tendency to fluctuate, if that were not the nature, what might that be? What about in uh, Indian tradition? Do we have some correlation there or have we heard or read of something that talks about a similar concept? Yeah, this is a great question. So I think in the Indian tradition, it's the third mind is described from the first mind perspective as Nirguna Brahman. Okay. Right? So um, in, in the idea of Brahman as that totality, there can still be, let's say, Saguna Brahman, right? Which is Brahman as also experiencing itself or expressing itself 
depending on the interpretation, depends on which interpretation, but I'm just giving one interpretation, expressing mm-hmm. itself as the world of multiplicity. But the identity is still as that Brahman. This is something like Saguna Brahman. Nirguna mm-hmm. Brahman is often, when we talk about it, it's often the person who's sitting there with their eyes closed and experiencing or non-distinct experience, non-distinct in every way, without qualities at all, right? Mm-hmm. My problem in describing it that way is that it, it simply, it makes it seem like nothing. And it makes it seem like an it, like something I can indicate mm. and say, it's it, that mm. over there, right? I can, we can still somewhat indicate the second mind because we can, we can say it's, it's that which is not particular, that which is unbounded, okay. But now, once you've come to the unbounded, what is the word to go beyond that? I don't know. Maybe it's a limitation of my language. I don't know. And that's why I don't, to me, it's not the same as Nirguna Brahman. Mm. Third mind is simply, it is what is. And as it illuminates, this is the world of the second mind, which then Mm. differentiates, self-superimposes, and creates boundary. And this is the world of multiplicity, the first mind world. Mm. And does the third mind have a reason? Right. Yes. I, w- I would say no to all of those questions because the, the third mind doing something or the third mind giving rise to the second mind and the first mind, these are all first mind ideas. Mm. Right? So it is, it is simply the way, if we have to describe it, we describe it in this way to kind of make sense of it within the world of particularity. But as the third mind, there's only the third mind. There is no second mind and first mind right? These are, these are from the first mind perspective, we're moving outwards, so to speak, towards the second mind and then the third mind. But from the third mind perspective, there's neither the second mind nor the first mind. This is just what we're calling consciousness itself. Mm. I find this such a brilliant concept because just the fact that this seems to be pushing to the edge of our, not only our intelligence, but language and, and not being able to to one is described, visualizes, I think, out of the question, but yeah. it, it's just a stunning thought. And I'm thinking of probably something similar to uh, us as human beings, not having the ability to visualize the fifth dimension, for example, yeah. even, e- even if we do on paper, that's still a fifth, uh, it, it's still a representation of, 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 of a fifth dimension in two dimensions. So right. this is much, much further than that. Yeah, you know, I, I think one way to also appreciate it is to say that e- even in terms of second mind, you know, it's, we can't say the second mind is an experience per se, at least not in the sense that we use the word experience in the first mind world, because it's not, it's not distinct. It's not in distinct from something else, right? So in that sense, in meaning it's not distinct from something else in the sense that we think about in the first mind world, like the laptop is different from the bedsheet, which is different from the ceiling and so on. That kind of distinction is not there as the second mind. Mm. But as the third mind, we still cannot even talk about experience. As a second mind, we can still talk about some kind of experience. If, if somebody says illumination, if, some, if somebody says unboundedness, at least there's some mm. flavor that comes through, right? Of course, it might be a, a totally different understanding, different people, different flavors that's there, but at least something can be conveyed. Right. Mm. But when we talk about the third mind, we can say 
it is not a concept. It is so I often get people say, oh, so yeah, basically it's it's a kind of conceptual endpoint or something. No, it is not a concept. It is not an experience in any sense of the word. So here there seems to be a contradiction. Either it's a concept or it's something experiential, right? No. Because both of these are of the kind of first and second mind world. First and second mind, yeah. Perspective. Right. So in other words, it's something where language does not touch. That's all we're saying. It's not to make it seem tremendously mystical or to make it seem elaborately esoteric. No, it is simply a place where language does not touch. And it cannot even extend because language does not touch the second mind either. But we can extend it through poetry and philosophy and suggestion and indication. You know, we can extend it there. But here we cannot extend it because we've already extended it. Like it's mm. like the it's a rubber band. It's like it won't stretch another two inches. Okay, somehow I stretch it, and that's we've reached the second mind. Now any mm. more stretch, it'll crack. It absolutely cannot go further, and that's where we are with language in reaching the third mind. Neither is it conceptual nor is it experiential neither is it non-existent so i'll leave it at that yeah yeah and interestingly even though even though you just mentioned what you said it's not experiential or you you can't experience it or quantify it in in the typical third mind sense but you if there is a way to measure or experience it in a first mind then you already know that something similar maybe in much higher spectrum or scale is where it is coming from, right? So even if it is not directly measurable or we can't experience it, but the fact that we can measure things happening in the first mind or the second mind and then sequentially, uh, sequentially we can figure out that this could be something like it. I think that's what when we talk about meditation and we talk about reaching some certain states of consciousness or spiritualism or, or nirvana, it's probably in it's the same essence of of what that would be like i'm assuming yeah maybe i think that really depends on how how this kind of first mind goes about it but certainly i think there's the closest that the literature comes to it is this the the negating language right like not not experience not concept not this not that and mm -hmm. when all this is negated um, we often say it is what's left over, but that really is a second mind description, right? What's yeah. the, the original nature from which all of these emerge is a description of the second mind. Um, mm. But is, is that where paradoxes or is that what paradoxes signify or intended to signify earlier on as well? Yeah, certainly. I think, I think the root of all paradox is the third mind because mm. it, it, it shows us the ridiculousness of trying to have language describe what we might call reality, mm. right? Mm. It's, it's, it paradox shows you how ridiculous language is basically. It shows you to put it milder. It shows you the limitations of language. And if you look at it deeply, it shows you the limitation of thought because a paradox basically can't go beyond it with language because thought stops there and thought stops there because experience stops there and experience stops there because identity is bounded there. That is the original boundary, so to speak. I just want to clarify here for people listening or in case 
there is someone who gets that thought. When we talk about first mind, second mind, and third mind, in no way is the third mind or, the, or any way related to the third eye. Because when you talk about the third eye, that is more that people have heard of, at least people who are non-experts and we keep listening to what that is. But here, just to clarify, there is no correlation there. Right, right. The, th the third eye would be is something like the Agnya Chakra or the eye of wisdom um, in, you know, in, in the Hindu mythology. Yeah, but the, the third eye would also be an excellent uh, example of the second mind. I mean, from what I can, now that I'm an expert after listening yeah. to you. Yes, exactly. In the sense that the, the, the opening of the third eye, so to speak, or the, the opening of that dimension of experience is an example of the expression of the second mind. You're yeah. seeing more and more of the second mind as what we call the third eye opens, which is simply a, a simple way to say it is just, it's another layer of the mind opening. Another door is opening into experience as opposed to strictly looking through what we call the physical eyes. What, we, what appears to be happening when we're looking through the physical eyes is actually the second mind crystallizing as the nervous system, as the observer and the observed, and therefore light is interpreted in a particular way as it reflects from apparently external objects to the retina and interpreted and subsequently perceived in the mind. All mm. of this is a second mind phenomenon, but when we interpret it through the first mind, we take you know this brain that is already here, this object that is already there, and ambient light reflecting, this is how we talk about it. But from the second mind perspective, this broader picture is seen, which again does not contradict the scientific understanding of perception, which of course is always evolving also, but rather it contextualizes it within a much bigger picture. And in between these two, in between this kind of um, second mind as a complete phenomena and the first mind phenomena is this one gateway opening, right? It's like on the way to uh, if you go from, uh, I'm trying to think of India now, since you are there, if you, if you take the train, you know, my family is from Kerala. So if you mm -hmm. take the train from somewhere in Kerala to Tamil Nadu, for example, mm -hmm. along the way, you will see certain things. You will see, you will have experiences that you did not have, let's say, in Kerala. Maybe you have some sambar some way. It's a different sambar. It's a new experience, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So similarly, in this journey from the first mind to the second mind, one of the things that can happen and that ultimately will happen is what is referred to in our society as the opening of the third eye, which is simply another window or doorway of the mind opening to a new kind of experience, which is less localized than the first mind. Mm. And interestingly, in that case, if you reverse that and you talk about a child, uh, a newborn child, before he act or she actually experiences the world around them or is influenced by the world around them, that also symbolizes not an opening, but could be a closing. Yes, the, the birth itself is a kind of encapsulation, right? Because mm. it's mm. basically taking on the body. It's like when you go to work in the morning, you put on certain clothes and those clothes in a sense define you, right? If you're, if you're wearing... Um, clothes to go to the beach, you're wearing shorts and you're not wearing a shirt, then you're not going to go into the office. The clothes are defining mm. you and limiting you in a certain way. It's limiting your expression. It may yeah. be an expression that we choose, but it's still limiting in some way. Similarly, 
at what we call the time of birth is when this kind of encapsulation or even prior to when the baby comes out, but the moment at which the mind kind of collects this body, so to speak, this is the time in which encapsulating is happening. And certainly by the time it comes out into the environment, into the world, that is when the, the function is limited through a particular lens. Mm. And you said at that time, this mind uh, collects the body. So that's the time when a person is actually connected to, or a, or a body actually gets connected to the mind and not before that? Well, it happens sometime, for most people, it happens sometime during the, during the gestational period. Not, not when the body comes out, not when the body is delivered, but sometime during the gestational period. And earlier you mentioned about consciousness and you said, or we, we were discussing about the, the nature of consciousness and how it does spread. Now, I don't know if you've heard of this particular term about the net of Indra that is spoken about a lot as well in Hindu, uh, in, in Hindu cultures, mm -hmm. which talks about a prevalent net of light or energy that permeates the whole universe. Mm -hmm. And some time ago, maybe five years ago, people were talking about the Higgs boson and the fact that that was detected as the basic fundamental sheet of matter that when it collects together, it forms matter. Now, the net of Indra could actually not be the Higgs boson, but I'm just stretching my mind here. What the net of Indra could actually have been signifying is the actual consciousness itself that permeates everything else. Yeah, I think any, any phenomenon that is of a non-local nature, right? And that challenges our, our idea of, of space as having a particular boundary, right? And that shows us that there is something that is without boundary, at least, at least relatively and perhaps absolutely. Anything like that is a representation of non-local consciousness. I'm not saying it is non-local consciousness, but it is the human mind's representation, right? Like think about when we're in a dream and let's say we're in a dream and we are, um, playing basketball, right? And it just so happens that it's a, it's a nice evening in this dream and the, the sun is starting to set and you get this beautiful orange and pink sky and it just makes us relect, uh, reflective, right? And we're playing basketball and you say, you know, what is all this anyway, right? We start getting philosophical. What is all this anyway? And what is this ball anyway? And we start talking about it and we ultimately discover that this ball is made of tiny particles. Can you imagine all of these particles put together and makes this ball? It's just, it's like mind blowing, right? We're under this beautiful sky and it's an amazing experience. Mm. And then our, our physicist friend um, joins the game and he's playing too. And he's like, yeah, I heard you guys talking. It's pretty mind blowing, but you know, what's even more mind blowing. And we say, what? And he says, well, those tiny little particles, you know, that, that you were talking about the makeup of those balls, they're mm. actually, those particles are actually vibrations in a vast field, right? So that ball is not actually at a fund most fundamental level. It's not actually made up of smaller things. It's made up of these huge infinite fields, multiple fields, right? And when these 
these boundless infinite fields that extend throughout space, when they interface in some way, we don't exactly understand how, but mm. they kind of form this ball or what we're calling this basketball, right? So mm. what, is, what is he actually saying? Now, you and I, from this waking state, we understand that the mathematical representation that this physicist within the dream is calling this non-local field we understand perfectly clear that what this field is approaching is this actual dreaming mind, right? Mm. We know that that dreaming mind is actually boundless. And we know that that basketball is actually made of the dreaming mind. And that when this dreaming mind apparently localizes, it apparently seems to be made of tiny particles and you put them together and it creates a ball. So mm. this, this, physics, this physics lesson is basically teaching us that there are these representational non-local fields. Now, in our waking state, we have not yet reached the point where we're ready to say, these are fields, mathematical representations of a non-local consciousness. We're not there yet, at least from the perspective of physics, right? Mm -hmm. But if we can investigate this ourselves, we will see that there is a correlation in our experience that has been talked about in all of the world's traditions that matches exactly with this interpretation. So that may be what we are talking about when you're talking about whether it's Indra's net or any other field, these non-local phenomena are representations of an underlying non-local consciousness. Mm. And does that tie into people who can, or people who claim to be able to mind read or mind control, tapping into, when you say non-local, tapping into another individual's vibration? Yeah, I think once we move to a second mind understanding, so much changes, so much of what we consider possible, so much of even what is already happening, but our interpretations of what is happening um, will change dramatically, including what you just mentioned about reading minds. Because after all, if this is true, then the boundaries of one mind, as opposed to the boundaries of another mind, are simply aspects of one and the same mind. Right. So just like when I'm at work, my do I have access to Anup the father? I still have mm -hmm. access to Anup the father, even though the attention is on Anup the physician. Right. So mm -hmm. depending on how we play with these boundaries, attend to these boundaries, uh, build or take down these boundaries, then to that extent, what we consider possible and impossible changes. During the Cold War, there was a lot of emphasis that was put on this aspect of of science, where ex uh, experiments were being conducted on remote viewing, for example, and Russell Targ or whoever employed in in the U.S. to to spy or try to remote view or remote sense targets in Russia and vice versa, and there was so much of activity happening there with the psychic phenomenon, but it all seemed to have died off. Probably the famous one there was the, the Stargate project. And I don't know whether it's still being done or whether it's, it's not uh, publicly, publicly claimed. Mm -hmm. But that interest is, is, is being regenerated now, I can see. Yeah, probably. I'm not aware of the status of any of these projects, but uh, I don't think it's any stretch to say that I'm sure people have always been researching these, regardless of what is formally known or publicly known or not, because these are simply 
they can be just seen in a simple way as very powerful technologies, right? If we, if we look at simply looking at something or feeling an emotion, mm -hmm. if we want to put it in the language of today, we can see it as an incredibly advanced technology that seems so simple, but how we don't even know how to recreate it yet, right? So any of these things, whether you call them remote viewing or anything else, if we look at these as technologies, I'm sure that there are people looking into this all over the world and that have expertise in this. Earlier, we did mention people with higher potential of second mind who have more control over that than, than most of us. Yeah, and I, I want to distinguish here between what I'm referring to the second mind and other kinds of abilities that are not common in our society or that are not thought to be common. Mm. The second mind incidentally includes all such things, but the second mind primarily is not about such things, right? Mm -hmm. The sense that the, the second mind is the identity of non-local nature and therefore the, its expressions will be different than that of a strictly more first mind identity. But that doesn't mean that the most significant aspect of the second mind is this. In fact, I think that leads to many problems that becomes very problematic because mm. in a sense, what happens is one still goes on collecting abilities, right? Which is, I think the problem to begin with in our world is that it's all about collecting something more and gaining something more and getting a new skill and more of this and more of that, but that's still going to lead to more of wanting more. So mm. whether the abilities are gross or the abilities are subtle, um, there are still distinct abilities in a certain sense. So the second mind perspective is not about those. It is more about recognizing and seeing what we are and what this world is more completely. There's just a certain clarity and ease that comes with this and incidentally other things also. So currently in what you do and as an emergency physician, mm -hmm. every time you're called to work, technically, uh, is something has gone wrong. We get up and we go to work, irrespective, and, and we're hoping there should be work. Mm -hmm. And in your case, the moment you do get a call or you're, you're called at whatever time, you know that, okay, there's a situation here and you know what that situation could be. When you get there or before you get there or while you're getting to work or while you're getting to the hospital, is there any routine? Is there anything that you practice personally that helps you go through this or after a period of time you have figured out that uh, I can deal with this as compared to a few years ago yeah fundamentally the routine is not different than anything else so anytime I am preparing for a certain activity there is a choice as to where to keep the identity where to identify so to speak right? Mm. How much of which range along the three minds is there going to be identification? Because according to that, perception changes, thinking changes, language changes, and so on. And so depending on the audience, depending on the need, depending on the purpose, that, that range will shift somewhat, right? Usually not dramatically, but somewhat it will shift. So that's something no matter what activity I'm entering into, I do. And in the case of emergency medicine, what you're doing is you're going into a place where there is a great deal of pain, 
right? There's the, the emergency department is such a place that it's open 24 seven, 365. It never closes. And so what we say yes to the emergency department is any pain or any, um, what's the word? Any trauma, distortion, trauma, of course, but I'm trying to think in just in a, any kind of misalignment or anything not feeling right. If it's, mm. if it's bad enough, if it, gets, if it gets severe enough in the experience of that person, we say yes, in the, emergency med- in the emergency department, come on in. So of course, we'll see what we call physical trauma, physical injury. Of course, we see what we call mental trauma, mental injury, but even existential problems that may not be identified as existential, but that show up through the body or through the mind, this also is there. So because of this, there is there is a certain preparation where I try to do things like eat certain foods, eat the foods that are more grounding, you know, try to get in nature, be in nature. And then the practicalities of staying hydrated, all of these things, because the body has to function well, the mind has to function well, the individual mind has to function well. The broader mind has to also be established because otherwise it's easy to get destabilized in such environments, right? When you have an environment in which one person is very unstable and one person is not, one of two things is going to happen. Either the stable person will become unstable or the unstable person will become more stable because Mm. all, all boundaries are superimposed. So while my body might appear different from another's body, at, at the deeper level, such boundaries are not there. And that's why that influence happens. So being more established in that nature and also yet not being so established that we can't express and do the right things in this environment. So all of that, in a simple way, I'd say it's choosing the right range of identity and then doing the things that are going to facilitate expression in that range. Mm which by the way, I'm doing right now. So in having this conversation, there's a certain range that has to be occupied. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to engage in this conversation. It would have to go more towards one side or the other. For students listening to you, if there was somebody thinking of getting into the profession of or pursuing a career as as an emergency physician, do you have certain competencies that the person should should have or should know that they have. And the reason I'm asking this is it just helps that person decide earlier than late. Yeah, you know, I would say, of course, you can expect this answer based on the conversation, but I would say being aware of yourself and your state of mind. Now, of course, this is a broad thing for life in general, but you can say that the more emergent a situation, the more acute a situation, the more unstable and unpredictable a situation, the more you should know yourself and what state you're in and what are the things to do to match your state for optimal functioning in that situation. Because if not, it can be incredibly destabilizing and you will see a tremendous amount of suffering and you'll be in a place where there is a tremendous amount of suffering and confusion and fear. So I think that is very important. Beyond that, of course, the ability to make decisions um, in, in environments that are very busy when there's a lot going on, the ability to still make decisions in that environment, the ability to make decisions in the face of tremendous uncertainty. So if you have a day or two to assess a situation 
and make the decision okay but if you have a minute or two to assess a situation and make a decision then you're not going to have nearly the same amount of information you have to rely on a lot of other cues so some people are comfortable doing that or at least okay doing that and some people it really goes against their nature to do that so those are two big things and for people listening like me as well if uh, i mean nobody wants to get into any situation but just in case we happen to be in an emergency situation and there is no help around or uh, the professionals are going to take time to get there are there some general rules that you could share with us that anybody could do just not to make the situation worse i i don't know how we could we could not make the situation better but if you are on that spot there are a few things that probably you could tell us you we could do i would say you know look look carefully at the person and and be with this person and see what their experience is you know um share that experience with them obviously if there's something if there's something like you know that just crushed their leg for example you know and that's on their leg or something and and we want to move it or some immediate thing that's obvious that you want to remove some immediate danger then obviously that makes the most sense obviously if the person doesn't have a pulse or they're not breathing then cpr right i mean there's some things that that should be the first things that we attend to but assuming that it's not one of those situations and the the person is breathing and they have a pulse and from a medical standpoint we don't really know what to do i would say follow the cue of the person you know be there for that person see what they need maybe the biggest thing is just calling for help be that person who is present that can call for help you know the simple the simple things aren't fancy you know noting what is the obvious doing the obvious cpr calling for help and then being there with the person because even in the er you know once we've taken care of all these things as we are taking care of all of these basics right we often talk about the basics the airway the breathing the circulation you know the biggest thing is really being with that person that really gives that sense of relief even in the even in the face of everything that's going on and that that doesn't mean you're silent it doesn't mean you're just standing there it doesn't mean you're quote unquote not doing anything but simply attending to that person's experience and being responsive to that experience perfect and if you had to give a message to everybody listening and i want to specifically ask you to talk to the students here on on listening to your podcast some of them are in high school some of them college some of them past universities uh whatever they choose to do in life whichever field they choose to to get into what would your advice to them be as they go through this i would say that what you are is amazing just to begin with what you are is already amazing because if you are in high school or college or something you've likely already been told that you need to get these grades and this degree and this kind of career and this much money and that is what will give you value right even if nobody says it explicitly this is kind of implicitly there likely in the culture and you know contrast that with another story which is that you are already amazing as you are and there is 
a deep intelligence within you that has always been there. And that you are as good or as bad, as great or as not great as any other human being that has ever been here. Because we're all part of this universe, right? From a very simple and fundamental perspective, we're all part of this, what's going on. And we are simply expressing differently. So recognizing that this is always there, regardless of what people say, people with degrees, people who are very official, people who seem like they know what they're talking about, people who do know what they're talking about even. Regardless, there is this deeper aspect of every person, including you, that is amazing and that is full of potential. And one can draw on that at any time. That is always available regardless of whatever else is on top of it, regardless of whatever other expressions are on top of it. So maybe once in a while, just remember that. And once in a while, just shift your attention to be in touch with this and see how that might inform your life differently. Perfect. And thank you so much yes. once again. It was a brilliant, brilliant session. Anytime, Joe Kim Gonzalez. Great.
इस हब हॉप ओरिजिनल को सुनने के लिए आपका शुक्रिया अगर आप भी अपना पॉडकास्ट लॉन्च करना चाहते हैं तो हब हॉप स्टूडियो वेबसाइट पे रजिस्टर करें और एक मिनट के अंदर अंदर अपना खुद का पॉडकास्ट लॉन्च करें यही नहीं स्टूडियो देता है आपको पूरी आजादी कहीं भी कभी भी अपना पॉडकास्ट लॉन्च करने की सिर्फ तीन आसान स्टेप में तो साथ में अपना पॉडकास्ट शुरू करने के लिए तैयार जस्ट हॉप ऑन हब हॉप सिंपली कॉन्टेंट